Hello and welcome to another edition of Spotlight, the Star Trek podcast presented from a non-Trekky perspective. I am joined by my usual co-host, Matt Brothers. Hello, mate. You right? Yes, very good, sir. I'm Liam Dempsey, and we'd usually be joined by Paul Wilson-Morris, our other co-host. Unfortunately, he is unwell. Uh, we hope he gets better soon, and he'll be back for the next episode. But until then, we have a very special guest with us, Mr. Felix Trench. Hello, sir. Hello. Thanks for having me. An absolute pleasure, matey. For those who do not know, who are you and what do you do? I'm an actor. I work a lot in podcasts. I, I, do, I work a lot in audio drama podcasts. I work on one called Wooden Overcoats, which is a sitcom about funeral directors. And I make another one called Quid Pro Euro, which is a mockumentary about <laughs> the EU. <laughs> yeah, wood, fantastic, amazing stuff. Wooden Overcoats, obviously massive success. I've been listening to it. It's really good, mate. It's really, really good. Like I'm a massive fan of radio comedy. Like literally, my favourite comedy of all time is Hancock's Half Hour from the 1950s. I don't know if you've ever heard that. <laughs> yeah, Hancock is a big influence on Wooden Overcoats. Amazing. See, I. I Literally, I was like, <laughs> things, me, I was going, it, it, I was listening to it, and I was like, there's got to be a bit of Hancock influence in this. There's got to be, like, going, like, you know, and I did what I did my channel because if you turn around and said, nah, I don't even know who that is, I'd be like, oh my god, you got to check it out. <laughs> um, it's, I'm, so I'm not the. The Hancock, um, I don't want to say lover, I don't really have an opinion one way or the other. It's David, the head writer, is is very well uh, versed in, in classic comedy and classic British radio and television. Amazing. Yeah, no, I, like I say, I'm a massive, massive fan of Hancock and also kind of, yeah, classic British sitcoms and stuff anyway. And I think you can totally hear that influence come across in wooden overcoats very much just in the kind of there's a slightly i don't know like kind of gentle feel to the humor kind of thing but also it's very wordy and everything like that it's just really it's really good fun and uh, i mean the production on it is absolutely immense where do you record it we record in a studio in brixton called the art space studio well, this, that's where we record the 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 main episodes we also do occasionally like mini episodes and things and uh, those have usually been done in smaller studios. Fair enough. Yeah, no, because listening to it, I was like, you know, this this does just sound like a straight up BBC Radio 4, you know, sitcom. That's, that's what it was making me think of. And you're the lead of the show? Uh, one of the leads, I'd say. One of I think the leads, it's, it's a, an ensemble okay. comedy. For people who don't know what it is, do you want to kind of set up the basic premise? I play the kind of grouchy existing funeral director on a, a small island, uh, and then a new exciting sexy funeral director moves in <laughs> opposite and begins a, a funeral parlour with lots of mod cons, like a, a cafe and a bowling alley. And um, <laughs> my, my twin sister who runs the established business with me, is is the mortician uh, who is a lot more interested in embalming people than interacting with them, <laughs> really. <laughs> yeah. That's always the thing with audio comedies, isn't it? Like, I love the, the breadth of imagination it gives you. You know, unlimited budget, you can do whatever you want. And I love that this has kind of become the concept that this whole story is wrapped around and the amount of, like, characters and situations you can derive out of that is so fun i think i think i imagine writing sort of radio audio based comedy is so freeing and when you hit on a good setup like that you can just really kind of explore it and really have some fun i mean all of that goes down to uh, our writing team david the head writer but then he also employs about four extra writers per series i think uh, i can't mm. I, I can't remember off the top of my head uh, so we've had quite a few people write for it but david keeps very tight reins on it so he script edits everything afterwards different people bring their own flavour which I think has contributed to the overall feel of the show but then having someone who is very good at plotting and at looking at things from the audience point of view has really I think set the overall feel of it really really impressive show I definitely recommend people check it out 100% there's like quite a big back catalogue now because it's been going since 
2015, isn't that right? Yeah, we've done three series of eight episodes each, plus some mini-episodes, and uh, this year we were due to record our last series, but obviously we we can't, under pandemic conditions, get a lot of people into a studio, so that's been deferred to um, to a future exciting date that mm. we don't know yet. Because, yeah, that's I imagine cool, with um... the studio recording, it's a case of you all, you're all in the room at the same time, mm-hmm. getting that real kind of live read flavour, right? Yeah, so lose a lot of it from germs, being remote parts, just reading your lines. Just constantly naked and rubbing. <laughs> <laughs> but making also, sure I mean, everyone has... Like I say, it's an amazing, well-produced show. It sounds really awesome. So, I mean, I think you've got to get in that proper recording studio, haven't you, to do it? That's our preferred way of doing it, and we have two... Uh, incredible director-producers in John Wakefield and Andy Goddard who who direct while we're in studio. Usually one of them's in the booth and then the other is in with us and blocks us around the microphone. We record with a a, a slightly unusual setup for some audio dramas uh, in that we use two microphones which allows you to do a kind of 3D effect uh, and oh, okay. walk up and down. So uh, a lot of the audio drama that I've done has been dead on mic all the time, and all of the movement is done in post. But we try to get as much of the the movement in in the production itself. Oh wow, that's really uh, really cool. Yeah. How did it come about? Like, how did you get involved in the first place? In twenty fourteen, I think didn't have a huge amount of work in other fields, and I've always liked uh, radio and things, and I was trying to pitch things to the two places that you can pitch radio drama in the UK without really getting anywhere. So I suggested to a friend of mine, why don't we make a sitcom and just make it as a podcast? So this was like just after Serial, and suddenly my sort of eyes were open to the things that you could do with the internet, uh, and I came up with this pitch of Rhinofall Funeral Directors and took that to my flatmate at the time, who is a, a playwright by profession, and he kind of disappeared and wrote a one-page synopsis, and we went, oh, great, do you want to do you want to write this thing? And then we kind of brought more people in who were at similar stages in their careers, and uh, we all decided that we wanted to make something as, as high-end as we could. Yeah, no, and it, it totally it totally does come across as that. I mean, I've got to be honest with you, um, as much as I am a huge fan of radio comedy and kind of audio drama as well, like, I just hadn't... Uh, and obviously I'm a massive podcast uh, guy as, as well, but I just, for some reason, I'd just been kind of resistant to podcasts that were audio drama or mm-hmm. kind of, you know, audio comedy. I, I think it just a part of me... Because I come to podcasts for what kind of you know podcasts were kind of originally conceived as, and I'd all was already into kind of audio drama kind of elsewhere and stuff. I was kind of like, ah, uh, yeah, don't want to cross the streams like here. But then, so wooden <laughs> overcoats. I would say, I, I think I, I listened to like an episode or two of Thrilling Adventure Hour. I don't know if you've heard yeah. that. But I think really Wooden Overcoats is probably the first podcast like audio drama comedy kind of thing you know, I've probably listened to like multiple episodes and I was like, oh, holy shit. Yeah, this is like you say, like an incredibly high end product, like completely sounds like it could just go on Radio 4 today. Yeah, it just kind of totally shows what can be achieved with the medium. Um so, you're a massive Star Trek fan, I believe. I love um, Star from when, Trek. Yeah, from when, I first, <laughs> from when I first met you. Uh, we met at the British Podcast Festival. And yeah. uh, when I told you I uh, hosted a Star Trek podcast, uh, you announced your Star Trek fandom to me. And that's how <laughs> the eyes we, lit up. Yeah, yeah, that's how we end up where we are. So, we always <laughs> ask for guest Star Trek credentials. What we mean by that is what was your first experience of Star Trek? How did you get into it? What have you seen? What haven't you seen? What are your Star Trek blind spots? Go. Okay, so I grew up in Belgium, and I would have grown up watching Star Trek on uh, Flemish TV. Flemish TV was English with subtitles, unless it was a, a Dutch-language programme. All of the American shows were there. Your um, your Friends, your Simpsons, all of those kind of sitcoms were on a channel called VT4, and Star Trek would have been on a channel called Canal 2, Channel 2. The earliest 
I watched must have been TNG. That's the kind of most indelibly, this is baseline Star Trek in my head, for whatever mm-hmm. reason. But I couldn't give you uh, a first time I watched it. I remember Voyager having the 8 o'clock slot on Canal Tve, which was like the hour-long sci-fi show, which later became like Stargate SG-1, and I think The X-Files had that slot as well. So it was that kind of show. So for a long time, it was those two. It was TNG and Voyager. I came to DS9 so much later than those. I think just because it wasn't on. And I I only ever watched that fairly recently through Netflix. My main blind spots are the earlier ones, like the original series. I've watched the films, but not the actual show. I had a box set of like the first five films on VHS. And then when I discovered like that there was a sixth one that sits between the fifth one and Generations, it was like this secret Star Trek film. <laughs> yeah, that's the most frustrating box set to release. It's like, here's the first five, but it's not quite the original series collection. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think I remember that, that first five box set. That's the one that sat in that um, sh- shop window in our hometown. Uh, bros for years that we I would pass I swear for about 20 fucking years the same box set in this old second hand shop shop window yeah and it was gradually getting more sun faded with each passing year (laughs) no one fucking buying it (laughs) yeah yeah oh okay so that's cool so you've not really seen much of original series then no not really um or enterprise I've uh, tried a couple of times with enterprise but sort of struggled okay and you today have picked Message in a Bottle from Star Trek Voyager. So this is season four, episode 14 of Star Trek Voyager, first broadcast on 21st of January 1998. A beacon of hope. You may be our only chance. Lights the way home. Far be it for me to turn down an opportunity to become a hero. But a mission for help goes haywire. What the hell are you doing in my sick bed? Can two holographic doctors destroy the enemy? You're the Mark One EMH, the inferior program. Before they destroy each other... I'm a doctor, not a commando. ...on the next Star Trek Voyager. So I sent you a list of loads of really good TNG episodes. <laughs> and then I was like, I can't, it can't just be... It can't just be inspirational Picard speeches. There must be something else. So I was trying to think of uh, a Voyager episode. And Message in the Bottle is the one that I remember as the turning point for the series. It's the moment it stops being about sort of exploring the Delta Quadrant. And it's the first time that the Alpha Quadrant is aware that Voyager is alive. So although it's it's actually quite a fluffy episode, it's a very important one in the Voyager story. Mm. That's it. When I was when I was watching it, I haven't watched much Voyager since we first sort of covered it for the show, and so there's just been hand-picked ones here and there, and it, I was enjoying the episode, and then by the time it gets you know, towards the end when they do make contact with the Alpha Quadrant, I was like, oh, this feels like a big step in what this series overview story is. And so I was like, it's quite interesting that they've hung this big development in the overarching story onto an episode like this. And it's just a really good marriage, I think, of story of the week plus moving the big thing along, which I think a lot of network shows at the time are really good at. And I think what is kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit in today's TV, where the ones that truly can marry the kind of story of the week and big story stuff. So and to see it happen kind of a few episodes into season four of seven, it's quite an interesting midpoint, like you say, I think. Yeah, when I uh, watched the episode, obviously I did some research on it and discovered that it is the first time they basically make contact with home. And I was like, shit, four and a half seasons deep before they make any contact with home. And I think this is so indicative of the era it was made. Like in terms of you get the general setup and the pilot of, you know, we've been forced, I think it's it's 70, 70 years into deep space, isn't it? I think that's what it was, yeah. yeah. I think it's 70 years into deep space. And you get that set up, and then you would think that the show would become about instantly, right, got to get home, got to get home. But very quickly, it kind of doesn't. Very quickly, it does become just another Star Trek show, essentially, where they are, well, you know, almost like a bit of a kind of TNG clone. 
in moments where they're just exploring different aspects of the, you know, the Delta Quadrant every week. And then, you know, suddenly, at this point in C4, it's like they wake up and suddenly go, oh, yeah, we, we were trying to get home, weren't we? Like, let's let's try to do that now. Like, And it's, it's interesting. I'll, I'll be interested now watching episodes going forward in terms of does this really get the momentum going? Because having a look at it, it sounds like this is the last time again they manage to make contact with anyone until, like, season six. So I'm just like, are they kind of consistently trying after that? Or are they just like, I'll oh, forget about it for another two seasons, don't worry about it. <laughs> well, you're right, it's that sort of thing, I think, where, because this is the era when, you know, shows had the time to relax in this. I think by yeah. now they probably knew season one's going to be shit, season two's <laughs> going to be shaky, so season three will get good. Whereas I think it, this sort of storyline, if it was done today in a Discovery style, it would be like season one, episode eight, maybe, that they... Yeah, hit this point yeah, like sort of two thirds through the season like, oh here's the next Not next act four, break basically 14. fucking hell like uh <laughs> yeah i mean it's it, it's it just seems weird to be like wow you know you, you get to this point you go what were you doing for the other three and a half fucking seasons you know what i mean <laughs> <laughs> but somehow they will have spent three episodes on a relationship between tuvok and someone else do you remember the first time you caught this episode Felix, were you watching the show all in order and this one stuck out or is there a particular moment when you go, oh, I remember seeing this one live or on DVD or... No, I don't remember the first time that I, I watched it. I I remember... I think I re- what sticks out to me is that it is... Like, it is a texturally quite different episode. Literally just because the aesthetics that you look at are the aesthetics of, like, the film's Star Trek rather than Voyager. And they're just, like... The change in the uniforms, the the way that the new spaceship is decked out in slightly more modern shades of beige and cream. A slightly different showroom. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently this is the first episode where they started using the movie uniforms, this one. So it is a big turning point in that regard. Is it of all Star Trek, including DS9? Uh, no, no, specifically for Voyager is okay, yeah. the first one that they because obviously at the um, beginning of Voyager they're in far more early style TNG kind of colourful uniforms, aren't they? And then yeah. apparently this episode is the one where it starts becoming the grey kind of movie uniforms, which I vastly prefer. But this episode, I should say, written by Lisa Klink, who was a story editor on Voyager. She also wrote. Star Trek The Experience, Borg Invasion 4D in 2004, which was one of the attractions at the Star Trek Experience at the Las Vegas Hill. All stations red alert. Brace for impact. Fire quantum torpedo. The Borg have entered the facility. Resistance is futile. Borg Invasion 4D. Now open at the Las Vegas Hilton. Opened in January 1998, <laughs> closed in September 2008. Now, we've been to Las Vegas, Matt, in 2007. Yes. Wait, so that would have been there when yeah, we were that there? Yeah, was, that was fucking there, mate. And one of my great regrets that we did not go <laughs> to this, because I think obviously we started this podcast in 2016, and the whole point of it was we were going from a non tracky perspective on it so it's not like i don't we wouldn't have been looking for star trek the experience no it in, wouldn't have been on our radar but, but what I, annoys I think paul me, might have wanted to well, drag this us is, this is it right this is what fucks me off right paul who is not <laughs> here today felix but is the other uh, member of our trio he out of all of us is the one who was the biggest star trek fan before this he he'd lapsed he'd lapsed and so kind of you know he it's kind of a revisitation for him but when he was a kid, he was a big fucking Star Trek fan. And I think that deep down, he would have wanted to go to that Star Trek experience in Las Vegas. And I think he didn't say or something through fear of ridicule. <laughs> and then he suggested Beatles Love instead. And he was like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We went to see a circuit to Slay instead. But I reckon... Tell us we're wrong, Paul. Tell us we're wrong. Yeah, he wanted to go and see Star Trek The Experience. And now, I'm like, I would have loved to have gone. It looked absolutely amazing. You haven't been to Star Trek The Experience in Las Vegas, Felix? I have not. <laughs> I wish. Yeah, I mean, apparently it was incredible. It sounds like they had, like, a full 
recreation of like the ship and stuff like it sounds absolutely immense and you know if it's a las vegas casino they're pretty kind of lavish in their designs so i can totally imagine it but yeah she wrote that it was directed by nancy malone who sounds like a bit of a legend actually she died in 2014 but she had an amazing career started out as an actress on tv and broadway uh, but then became a director and kind of sounds like she was one of the first kind of like female kind of TV directors working in Hollywood, really. And she actually became the first female vice president of TV at 20th Century Fox. So it's pretty mm. incredible. She also directed an episode of Starman. Now, I had no idea this fucking existed. But obviously Starman, the John Carpenter film, apparently it had a television spin-off that ran for one season where Starman was played by Robert Hayes, the lead from Airplane, and continued <laughs> the story of John Carpenter's Starman, which I, I don't think... Oh, was this in the 80s? Yeah, it was 1986 to 1987. I mean, I, I love Starman, but I, I don't yeah. think it was a hugely successful box office smash at the time. So it seems like a bizarre thing to do a kind of TV spin-off of, but she directed... I mean, I think we overlook it, but I think there was an era when a lot of movies got TV spin-offs they didn't really need or deserve. Like, even if you go down to animated ones, like the Back to the Future series and the Bill and Ted series, it's like all these ones that you're like, okay. Robocop. Rambo. <laughs> Rambo got a cartoon series. <laughs> cartoon. Really, well, it's that era of insanely inappropriate kids' TV shows, isn't it? It's like both Rambo and Robocop, <laughs> like insanely violent, bloody films, and then they make a kind of kids' <laughs> cartoon. From the canyons of skyscrapers to the canyons of remote mountain peaks, Liberty's champion is unstoppable. Rambo. Helped by the mechanical genius known as Turbo of disguises named Cat, the honor-bound protector of the innocent, Rambo, the force of freedom. So that's the kind of creative team behind uh, this episode. This is a hologrammatic doctor-centric episode played by Robert Picardo. like those? The star of Latent Image, the other fantastic episode we watched, the first one we watched, along with the pilot. Which one is Latent Image? Latent image is the one where someone dies on his operating table, isn't it? And they wipe it from his memory because he's too fucked up by it. That's it. Oh, yeah, and yes. he kind of goes yeah. like it's all about I need to have the memory of failure, or how can I yeah. grow? And it's yeah, really yeah, philosophical yeah. for a bloody hologram to bring up. And then you find out it's like he's remembered it before. And then they've had to wipe his memory before. Yeah, they've done it loads, right? They've done it loads, and they're just speaking about him like, you know, he's kind of, he's just a machine, like, he's just toaster, it doesn't matter. And he's getting so fucked up that they're like, we're just gonna have to delete him and shut him down. And then at the last minute, Janeway decides to let him live with the knowledge, and that will continue his Mm. growth and development. So that, I think, is season five. Yeah, so I this is coming so this first, is but you can, I'm kind of glad it does come first because he's still getting no respect. He's like yeah. being turned off midway through chatting, and <laughs> yeah, exactly that. Now this is something I really noticed about it because the fact that it is like a season before, it totally plays. And I was quite impressed with this just because Star Trek at this time and a lot of TV shows at this time don't tend to seed a huge amount of character development. It tends to be like you know you'll get an episode where someone will go. Oh, by the way, my brother who I've never mentioned is a heroin addict. Come help him, please. Don't tend to go building these things. Whereas in this episode, the way they're treating the Doctor kind of beds in their attitudes in latent image where they're coming across as really awful people and kind of treating him like he's nothing. Because there's that scene with Paris and it's Harry, isn't it? It's Harry, yeah, Garrett Wang. And they're kind of basically programming a new version of him and Paris is being his typical dickhead self going oh yeah why don't we give him a bit more hair make him a little bit a little less angry kind of thing. and they don't seem like remotely bothered that they might have lost the real version what's your opinion on Tom Paris Felix I take it you're not a fan no um, <laughs> I think uh, I think the character fulfills the role that he does like he's <laughs> He is the the Kirk and Riker character. He's the pretty boy bad boy who starts out in a New Zealand prison, which yeah. is 
Voyager's only nod to the fact that there's other countries than America um, <laughs> in the whole series, as far as I'm aware. Um, yeah, I quite like Tom. I like he is he has that role, and he also has the the role along with Harry of the the Star Trek best buds. You know how every yes. series needs to have the best friends, and a yeah. lot of his best series, his best episodes come from that. I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that scene you're referring to, Liam, is an interesting part because it feels like there's a lot of subplots going on in this episode anyway. Like it feels like the dot does the main story, and then there's quite a lot happening on back on the ship as well. But this whole part, like I don't quite get its purpose overall because it felt like a storyline better used in a situation where say you have a story where the doctor is taken off ship the best way to exploit that dramatically is surely to then have a medical emergency back on voyager which would need for them to build a replacement doctor in time you know so there's actual stakes and things but it feels like they're just kind of doing it as if they're almost like ah screw him if he ain't coming back we'll just get started (laughs) immediately on just building a new one and it doesn't really go anywhere but the panic to create that replacement would have had real dramatic weight rather than being a bit of a comedic sub-subplot kind of thing. But I think just, just to get them in screen time so everyone has a, something to do here, it's, uh, it, it works. I think also they, the beta plot is Seven is rude. You are recalibrating the relay interface. That's right. State your reasons for making these modifications. State your reasons, please. It's not what you say, Seven, it's how you say it. I don't understand. Rude! <laughs> we- <laughs> Which is kind of resolved at the end, where she goes beyond rude and becomes violent, and now Belana's on on side, presumably, because yeah, she she's a clown. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And she kind of shows her respect, doesn't she? She's like, oh, have you killed him? She's like, nah, just stunned him. She's like, oh, yeah, that's cool then. No worries. It starts out the episode with uh, Torres complaining against Seven, because I guess she's quite new at this point, isn't she? Yeah. Seven and nine. And so I thought, yes. oh, there's going to be like a kind of you know racism against Borg element, but they, they just kind of play it like bickering housemates instead. I was like, oh, okay, it's not quite that serious in this case. But so. I think it's the same that, with... Yeah, that was another funny through line. For, for Seven, as you're saying with the Doctor, I think both of those elements are seeding the larger story. They both they kind of weirdly compete for the Spock role in the Doctor and Seven, in that both of them are learning humanity, but from very different angles. Mm. And you can see the beginning of that journey in in both of them there, where people have kind of got over the fact that she's a Borg, so we can get on with her story. And he is... He's been given a certain amount of autonomy, but he's not really realised as a human being yet, as as an independent person. Yeah, that's very. That's you know, I, I literally never really thought about this as the makeup of the Voyager crew. But there's actually a lot of characters on top of each other that are sort of characters that would be the classic Star Trek learning their humanity characters, aren't there? Because there's Tuvok, who's a Vulcan. So Vulcan's always a bit kind of cold and emotionless. Got Bialana, who's a, a Klingon, although she always seems remarkably well adjusted. But you know, Klingons are meant to be angry and violent and everything like that. I think she's um, half Klingon, half human. I think. Oh, is that yes. right? Oh, okay, okay, yeah. it makes a bit more sense. And then you've got Seven and Nine, and then you've got the EMH as well. So there are all these kind of characters trying to harness their humanity within the same show, I suppose. So there's going to be overlap there but yeah you're you're right in terms of that there's a bit of character work going on there like in those subplots i mean i don't know whether there's any more material between seven nine and bialana at any other point at the beginning it kind of sets it up as if they're going to have like some kind of fight or something i was like yeah i'm well up for this but that didn't happen unfortunately but yeah I, i did like that when paris was being a bit of a flippant dick about the emh that Harry seemed to be slightly irritated by him and kind of like, you know, I'm trying to get on with doing this kind of insanely complicated thing, Paris, at the moment. Like, you sharp. <laughs> but the, the main crux of the episode, of course, involves the MH being transported onto another Federation ship, which has somehow suddenly appeared. Isn't it that they find some kind of old signally system that's alien in nature and they can use that to get in touch with a ship that is actually back in the Alpha Quadrant. It's not out with them. So that ship is just on the edge of the Alpha Quadrant. Right. So yeah, they yeah. can't they can't get a clean message out, so but they can send a hologram they can data send file, hologram I guess, so they, they send him off. And they he found, gets on they board found a telephone basically. The entire crew have been wiped out. I mean that's pretty dark, isn't it? Like literally when he gets on, because you see 
a dead body behind him before he realises that everyone's dead. And, I mean, he only seems to find, like, two dead bodies, but we're told that everyone on the ship is, is, is dead, aren't we? And the Romulans have kind of taken over the ship, and then him and the EMH of that ship have to essentially try and take down the Romulans together, which I which I thought was a really fun concept for an episode, just because they're kind of against insurmountable odds, and of course they can't physically fight or do anything really. Um, it all has to be kind of you know come up with kind of various different ways of kind of tricking them essentially, and that was all quite entertaining in terms of seeing the innovative ideas I had to come up with to kind of save the day. It was all quite fun. And the second EMH is played by Andy Dick, who's the big guest star for this episode. And this guy, as soon as he turned up, I was like, oh, that's someone well known. And looked, I was like, oh, it's Andy Dick. Yeah, I've heard of Andy Dick. And I was just like, yeah, I know he's a comedian stuff, but I swear I've heard other stuff about him. And then I went down a rabbit hole, a dick hole, as it were, <laughs> into uh, Andy Dick. And fucking hell, do you, do you guys know about this guy? I looked him up today. I hadn't heard of him, but I noticed that he was a special... Is it special guest star is the phrase they yeah, use? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I was wondering, oh, why is this man special? <laughs> I have skimmed his Wikipedia and yes. had a look at that video of him with Ivanka Trump, of all people. Oh, yeah. I think that after, you know, a short period of time um, in a serious business context, I have no idea what he's doing behind he's, me. He's, <laughs> he's, be, he's perfectly well, still. I'm like trying don't to be very, very... You don't play up the glitter on your legs? Oh, you so uh, Andy, don't please. <laughs> <laughs> don't touch Ivanka. Oh, wait, did I say I was single and then I had a boyfriend? <laughs> hey, Andy, please don't... Donald Trump will kill both of us. Actually, prior to my coming on the show, I think my father made you promise to defend my honor. And this is before he knew Andy would be on it with me. He never would have allowed you to come here if he'd known Andy was here. (laughs) Andy? Not not a nice guy, turns out. I mean, it does sound like <laughs> dip, dip by name, dip by nature, to be completely honest. Like, literally, it seems to have a litany of sexual abuse and, like, assault allegations and charges towards him. It sounds like he, like, exposes himself to other people, like, constantly and kind of gropes people and, like, pulls women's tops up and stuff like that, like, all the time. He seems like a complete nutter. Plus... Uh, said the N-word on stage during one of his performances. Uh, and apparently he's incredibly anti-Semitic. And also tangentially related to the death of Phil Hartman, voice of Troy McClure in The Simpsons, very tragically murdered by his wife in his sleep, a shot death. And she was a, like, a cocaine addict, a depressive. And apparently what happened is she was clean for years from cocaine. And then Andy Dick at a Christmas party offered her cocaine again and got her hooked back on it. Like the Christmas just before, like six months or something, before she murdered Phil Hartman. And John Lovitz, who was like best mates with Phil Hartman, has always blamed Andy Dick for basically causing Phil Hartman's death for getting her back on drugs. And then, apparently, like Andy Dick came up to like John Lovitz in a bar or something and said, oh, I'm putting the Phil Hartman hex on you, you're going to be the next to die. And so, I mean, he oh literally God. sounds like the most horrendous human being. So this is probably a one-and-done appearance for Star Trek with him, then? <laughs> yeah, it's his only episode that he appears in. He did not become a regular, thankfully. He's one of those people in my head where I think I just associate him with 90s culture in a way that you do certain people, yeah. where it's like, I can't really name any one thing you're famous for, but I know you pop up in, like, every show that was on at least once and probably a few movies and things. Yeah, yeah, I can't associate him with, like, shitness in terms of, like, Paulie Shaw. You don't even know, really know who Paulie Shaw is. All you know is that he's a fucking punchline. So it's like people go like, you know, oh, I wouldn't take that movie. Paulie Shaw fucking turned it down. You know what I mean? Like, it, uh, it, like Andy Dick is one of those people who's like a punchline actor to people. But 
he's he's all right in this. <laughs> I'll, I'll, say, I'll say that for him. I'll say that for him. Well, yeah, him he... like comparing himself with the Doctor because of course he's the next like model of hologram. It, it yeah. feels like a lot like Crichton kind of bickering that kind of style from Red Dwarf. And yeah, their kind of dynamic here is really enjoyable. Uh, the two Doctors making this very odd couple getting out such zingers of the Doctor randomly bragging that he's clearly built himself a dick and used it to have sex a lot. Like, I don't <laughs> yeah. quite know if we've seen that yet. <laughs> I know, he's well proud of that, isn't he? Like, um, and <laughs> it's always the case, if you've got a pompous character, what you do is you just introduce a character who's even more pompous than that pompous character. It's the <laughs> Fraser and Niles dynamic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Like, that's what they're kind of doing here. This is all very complicated. Stop breathing down my neck. My breathing is merely a simulation. So is my neck. Stop it anyway. Is this a thruster control? Don't touch that. We don't know what it does. It could be the self-destruct. You look worried. I'm just concentrating. You don't know what you're doing, do you? This is not a shuttle, and we are not on a holodeck. Mr. I can leave my ship. The voice of experience. Let me think. Ah, here it is. This looks like the nacelle power control. So? So? There's a little trick I saw Mr. Paris do once. If I can generate a slight overload to the nacelle coils, it'll collapse the warp field. Oh! Oh, what happened? I did it. We've stopped. Ah. All we have to do now is find a way to send Starfleet a distress signal and... Beep, beep, beep. Beep, beep, beep. I've never heard that one before. They are fun together. Yeah, and there's some good, for the time, I would say, like on 1998 TV, some decent kind of CGI and special effects in this. There's a good fight, some good Star Trek ships coming along, one of which, or a couple of which, very much looked like the Defiant. Yeah, they probably reusing models. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, I wondered if this kind of is happening at the same time, because I'm not sh too sure on the timelines, but whether it's happening at the same time as certain DS9 stuff, because they mention the Dominion. the Dominion War, don't they? And the Voyager lot haven't heard of that yet. So I wonder if it was out concurrently with the last few seasons of DS9. DS9 put on the grey uniforms for season seven, I think. I'm not sure if it's six mm. or seven. So it would be around there. It'd be towards the end of DS9, I'd have thought. Yeah, I think totally because he does. He does mention that he makes it sound like Dominion War is going on right now. So I think the implication is that Voyager has kind of yeah they've sat out the Dominion War essentially, haven't they? Because obviously they're you know out in deep space. So I guess that yeah. is all going on while they're kind of you know stranded. I mean, it was interesting that they didn't didn't really build on that because it made me think because obviously we've seen episodes of ds9 where they're knee deep in the dominion war one of the episodes we did recently felix was in the pale moonlight where cisco corrupts himself in order to get the romulans on board uh, on their side okay yeah in, I, in the, I vaguely uh, remember dominion this war. yeah and in that, it's very much in the beginning, there's that thing where he's posting all the people who have died in the Dominion War each day. And it's meant to be a massive list of names and people are coming along, seeing all their friends and stuff. And so this gives the impression that at the moment, you know, Starfleet are engaged in the Dominion War uh, while Vordria is out in deep space. And it made me think, that when Picardo comes back with the messages from her saying, oh, yeah, you know, they're aware of us now and that there's hope and all that kind of stuff, and they will talk about getting messages to their families and stuff, I thought, well, what's going on with the Dominion War? Because for all you know, the Dominion War seems to be killing loads of people. So it would have been interesting <laughs> if he would have come back and gone, oh, by the way, to one of them, your like, husband's dead or something in the Dominion War. Yeah. You know what I mean? I was just, it, just, it was just interesting to see that was mentioned, but then when he comes back, it's as if it hasn't actually had any effect on, on their lives. That he wouldn't go like, oh, guys, by the way, there's a war going on back home. Like I won't mention that. Don't worry about it. I really enjoyed, speaking of the letters, that Chakotay had decided it was such a Chakotay moment to write to his cousin. Like, <laughs> yeah, out of all the people, he's got he's got no one closer, or everyone is equally close in the Chicote family. <laughs> yeah, it's like my closest family member, my second cousin twice removed. 
<laughs> Get the slider to my cousin. <laughs> <laughs> Can I say, what about your children? Nah, they're fine. <laughs> yeah. this, is your, this is our one chance to get a message back. Are you sure? Yeah, I just want to let them know I left it's some like... eggs in the fridge. Like, get them up. <laughs> it's sorry. Sorry, kids. Daddy doesn't love you. <laughs> but yeah, it seems, I mean, I think, it's that thing, isn't it? And there is something about Star Trek of this 90s era. Uh, I think Deep Space Nine aside almost, as that kind of gets a bit more intense. But often, and I think maybe the part of this is that, you know, the characters are meant to be slightly slightly removed from humans today in terms of, you know, they are meant to be a bit above it all and stuff. But they always seem to act very chilled out about things that most people would be kind of losing their minds over. And, like, you know, just when he comes back and says, like, you know, oh, but get a message to all your family and everything like that, I don't know, they just don't seem that hugely bothered about it. They're kind of like, oh, well, good, that'll keep us going for a while, I guess. But they, you'd think, like, in reality, they'd be like, oh, my God. Like, you know, they'll be, like, breaking down and be like, <laughs> I, I haven't seen much... Because, you know, presume they've not seen their family in, like, at least three and a half years. They've been away <laughs> a long time, like, trapped on this ship with just each other for company. And you just, you'd think they'd react a bit more emotionally. But it's just, it just never seems to go that kind of place in these shows. Well, yeah, it feels like Voyager could have been a much darker show if every episode, every season, they all got progressively more pissed off with each other, just like <laughs> fucking, you know, Stockholm Syndrome writ large over a seven-season show, just like by the end, they're just killing each other, like, Christ! But well, I think that those episodes where they do explore the emotion, those are the ones that tend to stand out and you tend to remember. Mm. So, like, things like Yesterday's Enterprise or... Um, the one where Picard is tortured or like Year of Hell in Voyager, all of those are are memorable for their reactions to extreme circumstances. Yes. But you're absolutely right. This one message in a bottle, like the Doctor turns up at the scene of a massacre and then also slaughters a ship full of Romulans. <laughs> but at no point does anyone really seem an or, like particularly bothered. They're very much, we are we're led to forget about the bodies because if we worried too much about all of those things, we wouldn't be worrying about the, the fun buddy dynamic yeah. between the two A and yeah. EMHs. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. They're just Romulans, mate. No one cares. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Like, but yeah, no, I know what you mean in terms of considering it's quite, like I say, it's quite a dark setup. There's like dead yeah. bodies all around him and everything like that. But very quickly it becomes this comedy episode, which is yeah. it is weird in the sense of it's quite this pivotal episode in terms of the overarching plot. But actually it's quite within the plot of the episode, it's quite a comedic runaround. The directorial choices, they back that up. The fact that it is a very kind of peppy colour palette throughout. That mm. um, the, the design of the ship is... We're what, 1999, 2000? So we're just getting into that that trend of big blobby design. The Romulans are never particularly threatening. There's never any blood. They're killed by gas. At first, when they were talking about the gas, I think I just assumed it would just knock them out. Like, you know, it turns it just like not actually fucking massacre them <laughs> or whatever. Like, yeah, it's. Uh... I do wonder which idea got pitched first, like if there was, you know, the writer's room type situation. If somebody went, all right, so we want a story where the Doctor meets a qu another quirky counterpart. That's a, that's a good story. And then they, you know, have paired it with this idea, which is quite high stakes and quite tense, like him beaming onto a massacred ship. And they're like, oh, shit, well, we've already got him here. So let's just run with the quirky buddy thing. And yeah, and downplay a lot of the bad war stuff that's happening around them. But I think by doing that, I think it kind of works in its favour anyway, because I think you get to have your cake and eat it a bit, where it's the lightness of touch with the buddy comedy stuff, plus, you know, actually getting to tell this quite dangerous, deadly story. And it takes the edge off a little bit. And I think it kind of suits this show. I think it suits it more than like DS9 or something. Because, yeah, when it gets to the end battle stuff, like Felix is right, like some of the ship stuff's really cool, like the, the Prometheus that they're on, the whole deal with that is that it can split into like three parts and fire simultaneously, oh, yeah, which is really neat. Enough. 
And looking up, like, you know, what a lot of people think of this episode retrospectively, a, a lot of the chat is about Prometheus and that ship. Like, oh, it's ranked in the top five starships <laughs> of all the Star Trek and stuff. People love that ship, so... <laughs> I mean, apparently there's been, like, spin-off novels about that ship. Like, USS Prometheus spin-off novels. That. So, wow. it is, yeah, it's really... I mean, it is a cool idea with, with the ship. It's One a pretty design found, as well. Yeah, it's really, really nicely designed. One thing I found was interesting is the fact that we didn't actually get to see much of um, Picardo's Doctor like meeting, hooking up with Starfleet again in terms of because it essentially is they turn up and then it's cut straight to Voyager and he's back going, oh yeah, and I spoke to them and did that. And I was like, I would have actually been really interested to see that as in, you know, see him meeting up with them and going, oh, hi guys, so this is what's happened on Voyager and everything like that. Like, you know, it tells, it's, it's funny that we don't get to see what's happened in between. To the point that I was like, is the Doctor just lying and they were just like, that he just beamed straight off and was just, I've got to give these guys some hope. Like, yeah, yeah, I told them you're alive. We're going to send some like posts back and everything. Yeah, just just give me the letters. Don't worry about it. He just puts them straight out into the fucking airlock. Like, yeah, and I no, wonder also whether that's on purpose because you've got, you keep the audience sort of on Voyager mentally then. The Prometheus is like the barest crumb of a suggestion that there could yeah. be a world beyond uh, the Delta Quadrant, but we're not we're not going to build up what that wider world looks like yet. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. It's all it's all tease, isn't it? Because it's just all about because I I, mm. I I mean we haven't actually watched the end of Voyager yet, but I kind of presume I've always presumed they don't get home until the end if they do get home at all. I mean, you know, I've always assumed it's kind of, you know, end of series. That that's the idea. Because the thing is, with these with these shows, it would be unlikely, I think, for any of them to have such a grand shake-up during the show. So, like, let's say in this episode, if they just went, oh, we have actually found a way of getting home. That they can, they Starfleet turn up and they go, oh, don't worry worked out a way of getting you home they get home and it's like halfway through the entire series and then you have to have a massive shake up of what the show is about it's them readjusting at home and then they have to go on another mission or something like that Mm -hmm. i can't imagine one of the star trek shows of this era doing anything that game changing if you see what i mean like halfway through a run i think also if you do that it's the same problem that they had with the Borg, it starts to neutralise the threat. Like, just by saying there are these four quadrants to space, it means that now space is a little bit smaller because we know what to expect in it. And the, the threat to Voyager is the distance. But if you throw in this lifeline, then that, that kind of early we're lost at sea feeling disappears and you have to create... Mm. You have to, like, go... Actually, there's double space, or it's a multiverse, or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, very true, very true. Just a few of those rankings I was saying about earlier. So, Screen Rent last year ranked it as a top five Voyager episode, and this year, 2020, Sci Fi Wire ranked it as the third best of Voyager overall. So, it's definitely a well regarded episode. Is, would you agree with that, Felix? As I presume you've seen all of Voyager. I think it's an important episode. I think as a standalone, no. I think it is a, a really entertaining and competently done episode, but it doesn't break a huge amount of philosophical ground, of, mm-hmm. of character ground. It's all about seeding for later things. Yeah, moving towards Final Thoughts, it's interesting that I saw that this is an episode that is considered one of the best. Because I, I was quite... Like you say, I think it's an important episode. It's a pivotal episode in the development of the plot and the story. And I I get the feeling, really, that's the reason it's ranked so highly, rather than actually... I think it's a it's a perfectly enjoyable, good episode. But I've, I've watched quite a lot of Voyager now. Not all of it. But I've watched quite a few episodes that I'd be like are way better than this like I mean Latent Image I think is a better episode than this in terms of the Holographic Doctor Blink of an Eye is one that I've seen that's an incredible episode 
There's another one where there's like a bunch of aliens and they're kind of, they're testing like the crew, but they're all invisible mm, and they don't yeah. know, but they're actually like secretly testing. That's really creepy and weird. That's really good. There's another one that's all set from like the aliens perspective. That's really like, so I mean, literally like even just off the top of my head, I'm like, oh no, I've seen episodes of Voyager that I'm really like, are really fucking good. Like, Voyager was always one before we started this show that I kind of dismissed. But now it's a show that I'm like, no, you know what? I've watched a lot of standalone episodes of this, which are really, I think, as an overall show, as an overall series, it doesn't always hang together as well. But in terms of individual episodes, I think there's some really super strong hours of Voyager along the way. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I mean, something, again, like I mentioned it before, but the two parts of Year of, Year of Hell, have you watched that one? Mm. No, I haven't seen that yet. If, when you do, that was intended to last a whole series. Like, the writers came up with this this mad idea of what if we did a continual plot for, a, for the whole of season four or whatever it was, and then they were told by studio at the last minute, no, it has to be a two-parter. But it it's got... Um, What's his name? I think it's the dad from that 70s show is the main antagonist in it. Right. And he has, he's got a very Star Trek-y motivation where you can kind of understand it and you see where he's coming from, even though he's a terrible man. Those standalone premise episodes, I think, are the ones that stand out as, if you're going to click, like, the best episodes overall of Voyager. But things like Message in a Bottle... I think what they're so good at is it's that granular serviceableness to the plot that you are advancing the Doctor storyline, you are advancing Seven of Nine's storyline in just a, a few short scenes. And like that's, I think, the kind of the unsung heroics of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I could, that's, that's really well argued, mate. And um, yeah, I completely get where you're coming from there. And uh, like I say, he's, he's, yeah, definitely... An enjoyable episode. I think Picardo is always just a really arresting kind of lead protagonist for an episode anyway. I I think he's kind of gives such a great performance as that character and really imbues him with so much depth that you kind of, you you care about, I I care about his character way more than some of the human kind of characters on the show. You know what I mean? Like, uh, Similar, funnily enough, similar with Seven Nine. I think Seven and Nine is a great character, and I think she's. I can see it again, like preconceptions. Like before I started watching Voyager properly, I totally thought that she would just be pure eye candy and nothing else. Like you know, for the show, and that's what she was brought in to be, and that's all she'd be. But you know what? The writers and the actress who plays her really what Jerry Ryan really work hard to give her a lot of depth and a lot of character. Like, you know, really interesting relationships within the show, which, you know, I do think is, I do think is impressive for a character that could easily have just been very one note. Yeah. I mean, that must have been an uphill struggle at the time. Like you said, Mm. not make her like that, especially if she was kind of brought in to be eye candy, like you say, by possibly, you know, execs or people, bankroll in the show and, and, and fan demands or who knows what else but if if her and the writers got behind her and said right let's let's dive deep into what you know a de-assimilated borg working for starfleet can do this is a really great opportunity i'm glad they ran with it completely and i mean and it's you know that's why she's a character that they've brought back for picard because she has the legs you know as a character to keep going keep developing have you seen picard Felix, you haven't you? I have, yes. Yeah, yeah. And she's she's think... very good in it. She is, yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I swear one of your shortlists was actually the first episode of Picard. Probably. I think I just watched the first episode of Picard at that point. And you were like, I've just watched it, it's amazing. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I loved that first episode so much. I was like, oh, let's talk about this, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you were really satisfied with it, were you? Picard, yeah. It works very well for what it is, and I called the ending. I called the whole data simulation thing. I was very happy with myself. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing where it's going. I kind of got the impression that maybe they found out halfway through the writing process that it would be renewed for a couple of series. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Probably. But I, I think one of the things I 
uh, I'm enjoying the most of it is the kind of the greater cast. Uh, like the, the the actors coming back, I enjoyed very much, but all of the new people feel like really good additions to the Star Trek universe with uh, a lot to explore there. Like we we got we got a lot out of the pilot, whose name I can't remember. The actor's name is Santiago Cabrera, isn't it? Yeah, like, uh, and, and he is excellent in it. Very good, playing but all you, the different versions. We got a lot out of his kind of story, but it still felt like there was a lot more to go. Uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with with him and Alison Pill and um, Raffi. Yeah, 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 the one, the one who tells Picard she loves him at the end, and he says, "Oh, too." Even though I was like, didn't buy that at all. I was like, I don't know who this woman is. Why, why do you love her? Like, <laughs> but um, but they've also yeah. made like just some like general stylistic choices of like Irish and Australian Romulans, just generally expanding the Star Trek universe in that way that I I really appreciated and enjoyed. Yeah, I mean, I think it is good that they, they continue to develop it and everything, you know, obviously in Discovery they're finally uh, well, they, in Discovery they finally discovered gay people exist and, uh, <laughs> like, you know, a gay relationship and that, which is really nice to see and it's it's really well played as well by Anthony Rapp and Wilson Cruz, they're both awesome in that and now it's, it's very interesting to see what's going to be going forward with all these different shows they now have a development, which all kind of, I think the, the huge difference between what's happening now and what was happening in the 90s with Star Trek is now all the different shows they're making all seem to have very distinct flavours, whereas in the 90s, I think sometimes all the shows they were making felt a bit overlappy sometimes, even though DS9 would eventually kind of, you know, I think they all kind of eventually find their own identity as they go along and become more solidified in that. But certainly when they start, a lot of those shows seem very samey, I think, in the yeah, 90s. Because you know, they've got a, a successful format in TNG mm. and quite an easy blueprint to follow. You have the captain and then you have the other ranks and you have this kind of character and this kind of character. But it is, it's when they pull away from that that Voyager and DS9 become less boring like there's yes. a lot of of having to re-establish and kind of create a lot of paperwork and then eventually yeah. eventually we we can stop talking about Bajoran trade talks or whatever and and figure out what this show is about yeah and that's exactly it you can't often feel like most of these shows kind of decide what they're really going to be around the yeah. third season and then go right okay that's it we know now let's let's go forward and then that's when it really starts getting real gold out of its kind of concept uh well it's been great chatting this episode uh lads uh, really really good felix where can we find you online um at felix trench on twitter and instagram okay awesome check out wooden overcoats people generally really really good Really funny stuff. I, I I haven't finished it yet. I'm working my way through, um, but I've kind of really got quite hooked on it, to be honest. Um, it's really, really funny. And Felix is really fucking good at it. I've got to say, mate, you are really, really <laughs> top drawer in it. Um, so definitely check that out. You can find us at Spotlight Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can leave us a review uh, at Apple Podcasts. Drop us an email at spotlightpod at gmail.com. Uh, we will be back uh, with another episode at some point. Uh, we never really know what we're going to do next. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, it's just always... What... At some point is our catchphrase now. Yeah, at some yeah, point yeah. we'll just, be back you know, with just... something... <laughs> Whatever we come up with next, yeah, we'll, we'll do it. Strange um, times. We're we're all lost in the Delta Quadrant these days. So whoever yeah, whoever yeah, flies yeah. by, we'll grab them. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But until then, goodbye from me, Liam. Goodbye from me, Matt. And goodbye from our guest, Mr. Felix Trench. Goodbye. Bye-bye, bye bye. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye.